Our reading is from Matthew chapter 5 and verses 38 to 48. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you so that you may be the sons of your father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on evil and on the good and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? You therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. This is the word of the Lord. Morning everybody, good to see you. Um, If you keep Matthew 5, uh, 38 to 48 open, um, in front of you, we're going to be dipping in and out of it quite a bit. Um, I want to start off, though, today by asking you a question. Laura was just asking me as I came up there, is it a game? It's not a game this time. I've done that a few times, but it's not a game this time. I wonder, hands up, if you've ever heard these words before. You're the, the spitting image of your mother. Or you look just like your father. Anybody? Yeah, there's a few hands going up. Uh, if, I, if I had a pound for every time someone had said that to me, I'd be a very rich man because here is a young Ian McCluggage. Here he is. <laughs> Look at him. Look, there's some resemblance there, isn't there? You can just imagine, I know, bring that hair back. Imagine that fades weren't the end thing or the hair product wasn't a thing as well. That's what you'd be looking at for the rest of this talk here at the front. But it's a comment that a lot of children hear. You look just like your father. You're the spitting image of your mother. Newborn babies always makes me laugh whenever it's usually old people. Let's, let's be honest with this. It's usually old people who the very first thing they do when they see a newborn baby is they try and work out which of the, the mother's or father's features they can see in the baby. And you see them say things like, ah, she's got her mother's eyes. Really? I can't see it. Uh, got her father's nose. Hopefully not. But as the child grows up as well, as they start to mature, we see their personality coming out. And maybe the comments start to focus more on those characteristics that resemble that of their parents. You could a temper just like your father. Or you love spending money just like your mother. Maybe we've heard things like those before in our houses. If you're a Christian here this morning, I want to ask you the question. Do people look at you and do they see a resemblance to your father who's in heaven? Would people ever look at the way you're living your life and say, you look just like your father who's in heaven? I know they wouldn't articulate it that way. I'm not suggesting that they would ever say it like that. But you know what I mean. In the way you reacted in that situation, would people be able to see something of the character of God in that? In the way you show love to your wife or your husband or your children, 
Does it resemble the sacrificial love God has shown to us, his church? In the way you react when you're wronged by someone, would people see something that bears the likeness of God's gracious and merciful nature in you, his child? Those are the kind of questions that Jesus Christ has been asking us to consider as we've gone through this Sermon on the Mount series. And I don't know about you, but I've found it quite challenging at times. I find it revealing, uncomfortable. As I look in that mirror, and I hear Jesus say time and time again, as a child of God, is this you? Does this describe you? Jesus is going to show us, and he has been showing us, to live as someone who resembles the character of our Father in heaven, requires a righteousness, a morality that's not just skin deep. It's deeper than surface level righteousness. Verse 20 told us that already, because Jesus says, you can look righteous on the outside, you can keep all the technical requirements of the law, just as the scribes and the Pharisees do, but do it with a heart of stone. Just look at what he says to them. I want a righteousness that exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees. And that's what we've seen Jesus do over the last number of weeks. He's been fleshing this out for us, pushing and expanding our understanding of what true righteousness really looks like. The deep inner person sense of righteousness. Pushing us to look at the heart of the matter, which really is the heart. Because true righteousness works itself from the inside out. True righteousness flows from a heart whose motives are pure. And today we kind of come to the final part of this block of teaching from Jesus on what true righteousness really looks like. And we're going to see from verse 38 to 48 that true righteousness is motivated by three things. And I've chosen to use the phrase righteousness motivated by in each of my three points, because that's really what it comes down to. Jesus is concerned with our motives, not what's going on necessarily on the outside, internal disposition rather than external purity, the intentions of our heart. And Jesus is going to show us that to live as someone who resembles the character of our Father who is in heaven, it requires a righteousness that comes from a heart whose motives are pure. True righteousness, the righteousness that Jesus is after, is a righteousness motivated by a deep desire to show grace rather than seek revenge. Righteousness motivated by a deep desire to show grace rather than seek revenge. Now, verse 38 to 47, it follows the same pattern as we've seen in Jesus' teaching up to this point. Here's what he does. He gives what the Torah, the law, said, and then he gives a fuller explanation of its true extent. And then he gives some practical applications to flesh it out for us. And so here's what we've got in verse 38 and 39. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Here's what the law says. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. A turn of phrase that we've maybe heard used even in our modern day language as well. It's what we think about when we think of revenge payback, when someone wants to justify their retaliation when they've been wronged. And it's the law of retribution. That's really what this law is. 
And it was a law given by God to his people as part of the justice system in society. We find it at three places in the Old Testament. In Exodus chapter 21, verse 24, in Leviticus 24, verse 20, and in Deuteronomy 19, verse 21. And when we really understand the context of why God gave this law to his people back in the Old Testament, we see that the law was always intended for good and not for evil. It was designed to bring about positive outcomes in disagreements, to prevent violence from escalating, to ensure that the punishment fit the crime. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. It also existed to stop people from becoming vigilantes, people who just take it upon themselves to exact the punishment that should have been left to the courts to dish out. And so when we see this law of retribution in this light, we understand why it existed back then and why it exists in our justice system today. We see in verse 38, again, Jesus isn't contradicting the good of this good law. It's good for society if violence is dealt with accordingly. It's good for society and for people if there's a law put in place to deal accordingly with violent acts, to stop violence from escalating out of control. That's good. But here's where Jesus steps in to provide a bit of clarity around this law and what actually the true intent was in God giving this law. Because it seems the scribes and the Pharisees, they've, they've just taken this law that was always meant to be used in the judicial system of the land, and they've now brought it into their interpersonal relationships with other people. The law was actually put in place, the fulfillment of the law, it, it would be seen in the person who didn't feel this inner vindictiveness to get even with someone else. It, it was seen in the person who didn't feel the need to bring about justice themselves, because they knew that the justice system which God had put in place, it would be enough. They were trusting in that, that justice would be served, but just not by them. But that's not what the scribes and the Pharisees are doing. That's not what they're teaching either. And so Jesus steps in in verse 39, and he says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. Now, straight away, you might have some questions popping up into your heads. Does Jesus really mean don't resist evil? Is he encouraging passivism towards evil? Are we just to allow people to just get away with their evil acts in this world? Is Jesus telling Christians just to be doormats? To just give themselves up to be walked all over by evil people without being able to stand up for themselves? People even, based on this law, they ask the question, or based on what Jesus says here, they ask the question as to whether Christians should even be allowed to be part of uh, the police or the army. Because Jesus is commanding us here to not resist the evil one. But that's not what Jesus means here. It's not necessarily what he's saying. Because we have to bear in mind that what Jesus is saying, and that's shown in the four, four illustrations that follow, is that this statement isn't to be taken literally. It's not literally to actually uh, turn the other cheek and to allow someone to slap us in the other cheek. That's not what he means. He means you're to use godly wisdom in how you apply this law. It means that when we think of our heart first, we think of what springs from our heart, the motives, the desires that we have there whenever we're wronged. 
What's our first response when someone deals with us unfairly or unjustly? Is it the desire to get even that springs from our heart? Or is it the desire to show grace and love to that person, even though they don't deserve it? And that's what Jesus is getting at whenever he gives these examples. Look at verse 39. Let me read it. He says, But if anyone slaps you in the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Jesus, he gives this picture of a man being slapped in the right cheek, a back-of-the-hand slap, which in Jewish culture, it was regarded as a real insult. More an insult than a violent crime, actually. And it still is a grossly offensive thing in the Middle East. And it was an insult that actually someone could have taken another person to court for. The modern-day equivalent might be taking someone to court for slander or defamation of character. But how does Jesus say to respond? What's the truly righteous way to respond when wronged in this way? Well, it's with grace. Undeserved grace. Turn the other cheek, he says. Let the insults come and show by your response that you feel no need to retaliate in kind. No need to get even. No need to defend your honor or drag their reputation down as well to make yourself feel better inside. It used to kill me when I was younger, whenever my mom, when when my sister was annoying me, as as sisters always do, when mom would say to me, don't do that. Two wrongs don't make a right. We've heard that before, I'm sure. And you hate things like that because you know it's right. You know that two wrongs don't actually make a right. But it doesn't align with the sinful uh, passions and desires in our heart, does it? Especially when we're younger. We've got that desire in our heart to get even. To say something back which makes the other person feel as bad or maybe even worse than they made us feel. But Jesus says, if you're my disciple, if you're someone who is to be truly righteous, you've been changed. You're someone who has a new heart, new passions, new desires to live in a new way. And you have a deep motivation in your heart, a desire in your heart to not get even, but to show grace and love, even when that person doesn't deserve it. And so he moves on to the next two examples, and they say similar things again. He's encouraging us to think about our heart and our heart attitude when injustices are done to us. Look at what he says in verse 40 and 41. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Here in these examples, demands are being made of the believer which could be seen as unreasonable or unfair. A man being sued in court for his tunic. And how does Jesus say to react? Do the unexpected. React with grace. Throw in your cloak as well. The second picture, the Roman army, back in in this day, they had the right to force people to assist them, to walk a mile carrying their load for them. An example of this was seen in in Simon Cyrene, who was forced to carry Jesus' cross on the way uh, to, to his crucifixion. And it was something that the Jews detested. They hated it because it was a public illustration of being under the control of their enemies. It was something that left them open to abuse. How does Jesus say to react in this instance? He says, rather than just walking one mile, doing what you've been asked to do, keep going. 
carry the load one mile more. No soldier has the right to make you do that. Jesus says, do it voluntarily. Show grace. Do the unexpected. Go the extra mile. And in the last example he gives in verse 42, it deals with being generous to those who are in need. Jesus says, rather than being those who withhold from those who are in need, or give to them begrudgingly, or always looking in our hearts for something in return, True righteousness gives out of a generous heart. Never looking for what they can receive, but always looking to give. Here's what Jesus is wanting us to consider this morning. When evil comes our way, or when we're treated unfairly for being a Christian, which we will be. Jesus said that already in verse 11. He said we will be reviled on account of Jesus Christ. We'll be treated unfairly, treated unjustly. But what is your heart reaction going to be? Are we going to be motivated by a deep desire in our heart to get even? Or to show grace rather than seeking revenge? Are we going to be willing to do the unexpected, to turn the other cheeks, to go the extra mile, to give up material possessions, to be generous to those who are in need, even when it's not deserved? Because doesn't a gracious attitude like that resemble our Father in heaven? See, it's difficult to do this, really difficult. It's a radical way to live. It goes against the grain of our culture. But in those moments, are we going to ask God to remind us of his gracious character that's been shown to us? The one who's shown us grace even though we don't deserve it. The one whose gracious reaction to our insults to him has been to welcome us with open arms into his family. Remember, we're to use godly wisdom in all of this. And so I doubt that anybody this week is going to face a back-of-the-hand slap in work or that anyone in work is going to be sued for the nice suit that they're wearing. But you may face a pushy boss, someone who knows you're a Christian, and someone who takes advantage of your better nature. They ask you to stay late again in work. How are you going to react? What's the initial response going to be in your heart? Is it going to be one of bitterness? Is it going to be one of looking at that person and feeling rage towards them? That's what's going on in our heart. Or is it going to be that in grace we do what we're asked, but then we maybe have a conversation with them afterwards, graciously choosing our words, and say to them that maybe working late again is affecting my time at home with family. Is there any way that we can work around this? How are you going to react with grace? Or maybe it's someone in your class at school or at uni, and they say something spiteful, hurtful, towards you? How are you going to react with grace in that instant? Are you going to be someone that the initial response in your heart is that you want to get even? You drag them down as well. No, Jesus says, are you going to react out of grace and mercy and love to that person, even though they don't deserve it? Or maybe as you leave church today, you come across someone who's sleeping rough on the street. How are you going to respond to that person? Are you going to just walk on past? Pretend like they're not there? Or are you going to stop? Maybe ask them if you can buy them a cup of coffee or a sandwich. How will you react with grace there? 
Another situation I thought of as well was, um, and this maybe just applies to to dads uh, mostly, but think about that neighbor who comes across asking to borrow your lawnmower again or your power hose. They've done it time and time again before, and you know you're not going to see that back for about another month. How are you going to react in that instant? Are you going to show grace to them? Are you going to give to them even though they don't deserve it? In all of those moments, and whatever it will look like for you this week, will you stop and will you reflect on the gracious nature of your Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who showed grace to those who insulted him, the one who didn't retaliate or stand in his legal rights, even when he was being mocked in shame for claiming to be the very one he truly was, the King of kings and Lord of lords, the one who didn't resist evil but showed grace by walking the road of suffering and punishment and death for us. When we live in this way, we resemble the gracious character of our Father in heaven. We imitate our brother, Jesus Christ. Jesus says true righteousness is motivated by a deep desire to show grace rather than seek revenge. And secondly, true righteousness is motivated by a deep desire in our heart to show love to all people, even when it's costly to us and even to those who don't deserve it. Look what it says in verse 43. Let me read it. You've heard that it was said... You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than anyone else? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? It's the same pattern that we've seen throughout, isn't it? But there's a slight difference in this one as well. Because the law did say, you shall love your neighbor. But nowhere did it say, and hate your enemy. There's never a command in the Old Testament to hate your enemy. Yes, God does hate evil. He does oppose sin. But never does he command hate towards anyone. The scribes and the Pharisees, they've taken this law and they've almost bolted onto the end of it, an unwritten rule, to withhold their love, to hate anyone who was not considered their neighbor. But Jesus says, that's not what it looks like to live as part of my kingdom. That's not what true righteousness looks like. Because verse 45 says, we resemble God, we show ourselves to be part of his family, we, we show ourselves to be his sons and daughters when we live with a deep desire in our heart to show love to all people, even to our enemies, and to pray for those who persecute us. Because doesn't God show love to all people, even those who are his enemies and those who don't deserve it? That's the point Jesus is making in verse 45. God's love for all people is seen in his common grace to all people. Because he makes his son to rise each day on everyone. He's impartial in that. He makes his rain fall on the crops to make them grow for everyone, the just and the unjust. See, none of us deserve God's love. None of us deserve even his common grace, let alone his saving grace for us in Jesus Christ. I wonder if you've ever really thought about that before. 
Because here's the reality. We all have rejected God. At some point in our lives, we have all turned away from him. And for that, we deserve his punishment, not his grace, not his love. But isn't that why the gospel is so incredible? Because despite our rejection of God, he still loves us. Romans chapter 5, verse 8, it reminds us of this truth so beautifully. We heard it time and time and time again in our Tenebra service two Fridays ago. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. While we were still God's enemies, while we were still living in rebellion towards him, God still loved us with a love that was totally unmerited, totally undeserved, with a love that cost him so much. I heard someone say recently, we haven't fully grasped God's love towards us until we begin to show that love to other people. Not just the people who are our own, our neighbors, people in here maybe, but even to show love to those who are outsiders. We're to do something that is different from the rest of the world, to love our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. See, those who have received God's love should live with a deep motivation in their heart to show God's love to others, to demonstrate the love of their Father who is in heaven to this world, even when it costs us. And so I want to ask you this morning, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, does your love for other people, even those you consider to be your enemies, even those who make your life really difficult, does your love for them resemble the love of your Father in heaven? Are you loving just like your Father? Or do you only show love to people who show you love back? That's the way the world loves. That's how the pagans, Jesus says, love. The Gentiles. That's how the lowlifes, the tax collectors love. Not you. There's something different about you. How are you showing love to that family member who constantly rubs you up the wrong way? How are you actively loving someone in your work who never bothers to even look at you, ignores you? Do you pray out of a compassionate heart for that person in your class at uni or that person in school who makes it their mission to belittle you as a Christian? Do you pray that God would change their heart? This is radical love, isn't it? It isn't easy to love in this way. In many ways, and I know this myself as I prepared this this week, thinking about my love for other people in this world, in many ways it feels impossible to live like this. But here's the thing. It is possible. But only if we have a heart that has been transformed by Jesus Christ. You see, Jesus' love is the engine of the Christian life, driving us forward. The law, it couldn't change anyone. It couldn't change anyone's heart to love in this way because we're not changed by commands. We're changed by the love of our Father in heaven. This is how Sinclair Ferguson puts it and what he says about the love that Christians have for their enemies. It's brilliant, this. His love is not determined by the loveliness or the attractiveness he finds in the object, 
His love is not conditional upon being first loved. His love is not directed to those he can rely on to be loved in return. No. His love is controlled by the knowledge that when he was God's enemy and a sinner, the Father loved him. We love because he first loved us. And we obey his commands to love all people, even our enemies, out of a deep sense of love for him. Everything is downstream of that. True righteousness has its roots firmly placed in love. Love for Jesus, first and foremost, that flows into our love for other people. I think one of the greatest hymns that's ever been written is Isaac Watts' When I Survey the Wondrous Cross. Because in every verse of that hymn, Isaac Watts is basically saying, God's love changes us. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt on all my pride. Here's what Isaac Watts is saying. The death blow to pride isn't willpower, it's wonder. And the same goes for anger or lust or seeking revenge against others. The death blow to all of those things isn't willpower, trying harder to be better. No, it's wonder. Wonder as we fix our eyes on the glorious cross where Jesus Christ hung and died for us, where God's love was poured out for us. It causes us to say these words and to mean them with every ounce of our being. Where the whole realm of nature mine, that were an offering far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. The only way to live like this, to show grace like this, to love like this, is to live in wonder of God's love and grace for us in Jesus Christ. Because it's God's love that frees us to sacrificially love others. It's God's love that empowers us to graciously turn the other cheek. It's God's love that humbly makes us go the extra mile. It's God's love that encourages us to pray for our enemies and those who persecute us. It's all wrapped up in his love for us. That's where the inside out change happens from our heart first flowing in to everything else in life. That's where the rubber hits the road in all of what Jesus has been teaching here in the Sermon on the Mount. And that's why he finishes with verse 48. Because true righteousness is a righteousness motivated by a deep desire to be like Jesus. A deep desire to be like Jesus in all things, in every area of our life, in all circumstances, desiring to be more and more like him every day of our lives. Here in verse 48, we get the climax of what Jesus has been teaching. It's almost like a summary of verse 17 to 47, all wrapped up in this one verse. Here's what he says, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now think about the context again of who Jesus is speaking to. The Pharisees. This would have been like a thunderbolt to them, a massive shock to them. Because what Jesus is saying here, it harks back to the great holiness command in the Old Testament that they would have knew, known inside out. 
And this is what he says in Leviticus. God says to his people in Leviticus 19, verse 2, be holy as I am holy. But you see what Jesus did here? He changes it up. He's changed the word holy to perfect. The word teleos, as it is, which means whole or complete. Why has Jesus done that? Well, in the the Pharisees' world, the word holiness, it had come to mean just this external purity. It just meant behaviors. See, if we can keep the rules, if we can keep the law, which they prided themselves on doing, then it would be enough to make us holy, like God is holy. But that's not what Jesus has been teaching throughout Matthew chapter 5. Jesus comes in and he turns the tables right around in the Pharisees and their understanding of the law, of true righteousness that comes from the law. And he says that you can look like you're doing all the right things on the outside, but do it with a heart of stone on the inside. It never makes you holy before God to keep all the rules. Because it's possible to commit murder in your heart without actually killing someone. It's possible to commit adultery in your heart with, even if you stop short of jumping into bed with another man or woman. Jesus demands a righteousness that exceeds that, that's deeper than that, that goes beyond just surface level. He demands a righteousness that is perfect, that's whole, that's complete, that pervades a person's entire being, mind, body, and heart. And that's why all of Jesus' teaching here has been pointing to himself. That's why we're to read the entire sermon as a silhouette of Jesus Christ. Because as he said, he has not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill the law. Because he is the only one who is perfect in righteousness. He is the only one who is complete in his righteousness before God. The only one who could stand before God and be accepted by him. And he is the only one who can make us perfect in righteousness too. It's only through Jesus that we can read verse 48 and all that's come before it and not be left in utter despair. Not be left feeling completely inadequate or crushed because we realize how unworthy and how unrighteous we really are. But actually, we read it and we're filled with a deep sense of hope. Because by trusting in the completed work of Jesus Christ at the cross, then we too can be and one day will be perfect and complete in righteousness, just like our Savior Jesus Christ. We live in the truth of 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, where Paul says these words, for our sake he made him, that's Jesus Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. True righteousness flows from a heart which has been transformed by Jesus. A heart that is motivated to live in and live out the righteousness we have been given by Jesus Christ. Live in the righteousness of Jesus Christ because it's who we are. It's who we are. As followers of Jesus Christ, we have been clothed in his righteousness because at the cross, he clothed himself in our unrighteousness. He took on the filthy rags of my sin on his shoulders and that by trusting in him, living by faith in him, his perfect righteousness is placed on us. 
So in one sense, we're perfect already. Our status before God is that he looks at us as his child and he sees us as holy, blameless, above reproach, because he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ in us. Incredible, isn't it? Yes, we will still live as imperfect people. Yes, we will still mess up. Yes, we will still fight sin every day because we live in the flesh every day. But knowing who we are as children of God, living in the righteousness of Jesus Christ, it encourages us, it empowers us to live out that righteousness too. To live every day pursuing righteousness to hunger and thirst after righteousness, to live as the people we have been transformed to be. And knowing that one day, one day, we will be those people perfectly. Perfect and whole and complete in our righteousness. God is changing us from one degree of glory to the next, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 3. If you're a believer here this morning, you've had a heart transplant. God has taken that old, lifeless, dead heart from within you and he's put a new heart inside of you. A heart of flesh, a heart which is soft, a heart which is receptive to him, which is moved by his spirit to live in this way. A heart which has new desires, Christ-like desires, to be gracious rather than seeking revenge like Jesus. To love all people without exceptions, like Jesus. To pray for those who persecute us, like Jesus did as he hung on the cross. To be truthful and honest with our words, just like Jesus. To be faithful to our wives and our husbands in lifelong marriage, just as Jesus is faithful to his bride, the church. That's true righteousness. Righteousness flowing from a heart which has been transformed by Jesus and has a deep desire to become more and more like him every day. I said at the start, I've often been told that I look just like my father, Ian McCluggage. And you know, if I'm honest with you, I didn't really love that. You can see why. (laughs) After a while, I just grew tired of hearing it. Often children do, don't they? They've heard it for the the 10th, 20th, 100th time maybe. You see them rolling their eyes, thinking, here we go again. But as God's children, I pray that we never grow tired of being known for being gracious and loving towards all people, just like our Father in heaven. I pray that as a church, we'll always have a deep desire in our hearts, encouraging each other to live like this, a deep desire to pursue righteousness, to bear some resemblance to the likeness of Jesus Christ, our brother. All for God's glory, and not for our own. Let me pray. Father God, we're so thankful We're so thankful, Lord, because you are a gracious, a merciful, a loving God. And Lord, even though we do not deserve it, even though what we deserve is actually punishment, 
being separated from you for eternity, Lord, you still love us. And through Jesus Christ, you've made the way for us to be righteous, to have his righteousness put on us so that you look at us right now. If we're someone who believes and trusts in Jesus Christ, you look at us right now and you see us as holy, as blameless, as someone who is perfect. And Lord, we pray, I pray for us now, Lord, that we would live in light of that, that we would live pursuing the righteousness of Jesus Christ, that we would live to be people who are different in this world so that people do look at us and the way we react in all situations, whether wronged by another person or whether it's giving to those who ask of us when they're in need, Lord, in all those situations that we would be like Jesus, that we would display your grace, that we would display your mercy, your love, and that we would show ourselves to be children of our Father who is in heaven. Lord, it's not easy to do this. We need you. We need your spirit to work in us. We need, Lord, you to to give us that conviction in our heart to be those who are different, all for your glory and not for our own. And Lord, as we come to the table now, we pray you would just fill us again, remind us again of your love poured out for us there at Calvary. As Jesus Christ, as he, his body was broken for us there, his blood was shed for us there so that we can actually be clothed in, in his righteousness. Lord, we're so thankful for that. And we pray, Lord, that that would be the thing that actually motivates us to live with a deep desire in our hearts, to show love and grace to all people just like Jesus. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen. We're going to come to the table now, as we do every week. And if you're someone who hasn't yet put your trust in Jesus Christ, if you're someone who's still thinking this through, what does this mean for me? Then I would encourage you just to stay where you are in your seat and to think about the love that God has poured out for you today in Jesus Christ the grace that he has shown to you. I encourage you to accept Jesus Christ today as your Savior, as your Lord, and to live with that heart transplant being changed every day to be more and more like Jesus Christ. If you're a believer, come to the table this morning. Come and receive the blessing, the gift once again of of God's grace shown to us in Jesus Christ. Let's come with thankful hearts. Let's come with hearts that are bursting and just overflowing for love, with love for God our Father who is in heaven.